You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. Hello and welcome to Security Unlocked, a podcast from Microsoft where we unlock insights from the latest in news and research from across Microsoft Security's engineering and operations teams. I'm Nick Fillingham. And I'm Natalia Gadilla. In each episode, we'll discuss the latest stories from Microsoft Security, deep dive into the newest threat intel, research, and data science. And profile some of the fascinating people working on artificial intelligence in Microsoft Security. And now, let's unlock the pod. Hello, the internet. Hello, listeners. Welcome to episode 53 of Security Unlocked. My name is Nick Fillingham. I am joined as always by Natalia Gadilla. Natalia, welcome to you. Welcome to this special episode of Security Unlocked. Are you well? I'm well. I'm very excited for us to be bringing an episode centered on Nobelium. As many of you might know, Nobelium was the threat actor responsible for the SolarWinds compromise in 2020. We've talked about it in so many different ways, both as Microsoft and across different media outlets. And I think it's a a really good moment for us to sit and reflect about what happened. Absolutely. And instead of having a sort of a new conversation here on the podcast, what we've decided to do is take the Decoding Nobelium docuseries, which is a four-part video series. We'll put the link in the show notes. You can go and watch. Each episode is about 10 to 12 minutes. There's four episodes. You're going to hear from the actual frontline defenders, the folks that were sitting in the SOC that got the alerts and were sort of there from the very, very beginning. You're going to hear from others across the industry that really talked about why this was an unprecedented moment in cybersecurity. It's really a fascinating set of conversations and insight, and I think you'll really, really enjoy it. I think what really stuck with me is just the human element of the stories. I mean, you're hearing the folks who, like you said, were the frontline defenders. You're hearing them talk about what this looked like in their lives. I mean, some of them had to spend the holidays trying to deal with this Nobelium attack. Folks were getting the first texts and having to understand quickly what this really meant for us as an industry. And I think that all of those human elements really play out nicely in the series and also just speak to how impactful Nobelium was. And we definitely get to that in the docuseries, ruminating on what this means for us moving forward, what types of security protections we should consider with the rising state of nation-state attacks. Absolutely. So you won't hear from Natalia and I in this episode beyond uh, this little introduction here. The Decoding Nobelium docuseries was a standalone project that was uh, produced by colleagues of ours in uh, in the security team here at Microsoft. But you're not going to miss our voices. It's a fantastic <laughs> piece of content, lots of insight, lots of analysis. And uh, you'll hear from us again on the next episode of Security Unlocked. And so I think with that, on with the pod. On with the pod. is we live in a geopolitical world and there are lines of, of competition and contest uh, across the globe. And there is a consequence for all those things in the world of cyber. Geopolitics in the digital age 
has led to a proliferation of state-sponsored cyber attacks. Let's go over the facts. Nation-state attacks are malicious cyber activity that originates from a particular country to further national interests. These actors are focused and have the means to develop and deploy novel techniques and tactics, representing some of the most advanced and persistent threat activity Microsoft tracks. Historically, foreign actors have focused on governments, think tanks, and infrastructure. Today, the enterprise is now the most common target, representing 35% of all attacks. Nation states might compromise a business to gather high-value intellectual property or as a way to access their ultimate victim. And the risks to enterprises continue to grow. Microsoft has tracked an upsurge in the sophistication and frequency of nation-state attacks, delivering over 13,000 nation-state notifications to customers in the past two years. Nation-state threat actors like Nobelium are increasingly targeting supply chains with a 78% increase in attacks on vendors. Hi, I'm John Lambert. I run the Microsoft Threat Intelligence Center. The Microsoft Threat Intelligence Center has a mission to defend Microsoft and its customers against adversary-based threats. One thing that's different about that class of attacker is they have a durable interest in their victims. They want to be there to stay. And so as a result, um, they're not just attacks of opportunity. They're professionals. They pride themselves on their tradecraft. They improve it. They constantly have to respond to detection and still be successful in their mission because it's of national importance for them. And so but they focus on weaponizing and tooling for a number of different reasons. Uh, it could be for intellectual property theft and espionage, uh, to give your country a better foothold in the global economy versus another by stealing research and development, or intelligence-related missions. Hi there, my name is uh, Dave Kennedy. I am a cybersecurity consultant for Trusted Tech and Binary Defense, founder and CEO of, of both companies. Uh, been in the industry for over 21 years, uh, focusing on cybersecurity. It doesn't matter the, the size of your organization or company. Unfortunately, everybody is a target. Nation state actors are hard because they effectively have kind of infinite funding, right? They're above the law, at least in their country. Uh, and, um, you know, they have very good technical resources. So it's not like they're going to go, they're not going to give up. That's one of the reasons we put in the 80 hour days or 80 hour weeks. It felt like 80 hour days. Nation states really formed and changed how cyber warfare is being conducted on a day-to-day -day basis, not just from a country perspective, but also what we see from an organized crime standpoint as well. Uh, the first moment that I heard about it, it was about a particular uh, security partner, BIRI, that was impacted. And that was, uh, it was, that was instantly sort of eye-catching or mind-catching on like, oh, that's a big deal because they're good. Like, they're, they're a great security company and for them to have been hit by this, we know that something deeper is going on uh, and it sort of just rapidly peeled the onion from there. Rob Lefferts, uh, Corporate Vice President for M365 Security Products and Technologies. There's a couple things about it that make it really significant. The first, it, it was this moment where we saw a nation state attacker um, 
really laying the groundwork on a, on a significant operation over a number of years in, in a way that we always feared that they would. The issues around supply chain are something that we've been hypothesizing and to see them really put it into action uh, was, you know, dismaying. Uh, and then the other part of it that was significant was just the number of organizations that got hit. It was the span of it uh, and world-class organizations with great security teams really um, falling prey to this style of attack. During a software supply chain attack, an adversary compromises a technology vendor, slips malicious code into a trusted piece of software, and uses their distribution system to spread malware to customers. In the case of the SolarWinds compromise, a malicious code was inserted deep into client organizations' networks through legitimate software updates, bypassing multiple layers of security and providing Nobelium with immediate high-level permissions. Ultimately, hacking just one organization can result in thousands of additional victims. But you know, when, when you go after a company like SolarWinds, for example, which is a third-party you know, private company that does work uh, for a number of organizations. You know, with the SolarWinds Orion platform, they had over 35,000 customers that went into it. I mean, to go after and hijack an update mechanism isn't easy. You have to understand the build process, how they push code out, you know, where you can insert your code in, the structure and code of the actual applications itself. You know, you have to be very careful on code quality because you don't want to push updates out that all of a sudden uh, break the functionality and all of a sudden you're busted. So this operation has to go flawlessly. So when they got a toehold in there, they basically got a route into the most important parts of everybody's computer network. It, everybody uses solar winds. Well, most people, many people use solar winds. So they just got a ticket, a free ticket into all these organizations in a place that nobody would even look twice. This attacker was sophisticated and stealthy in the sense that they took a lot of effort to silo how their operations looked and presented to a victim to be very different victim to victim. They were very methodic and this attack was carefully planned over a year time frame. So nothing was uh, accidental, nothing was left unplanned or was improvising. You know, everything that they were doing was carefully studied and when they compromised the supply chain company, they first tested the attack for a couple of months. So they, instead of introducing the backdoor right away, they actually introduced just one line of code modification to make sure that this line was not detected. So when you look at what the attacker was doing, the attacker had to make a lot of choices about the victims they wanted to pursue and how they wanted to go about it. And so what emerges is that it became an attack looking for information to be able to use for its own advantage or potentially for future operations. Uh, this was uh, that spy versus spy game. That's really no different uh, than the same schematics that uh, you've heard about or seen only in movies uh, during the Cold War. This is just the next level. This is just the next iteration of the battle space here. While we are dealing with a lot of different areas that, that threaten our security programs, you know, a lot of the fundamentals and basics still can make a big difference in protecting your organization. You know, first and foremost, uh, some of the basics, vulnerability management, 
huge. You know, you look at a lot of the, the breach statistics and most of the breaches that occur, over 80% of them occur from a CVE that's six months or older. Keeping up with your patches on your operating system, your workstations, you know, your middleware tier, your web applications, all of those things are really important to ensure that you're, you're, you're maintaining a base level of security because those are already known issues that, you know, hackers are going to exploit and, and specific things to that effect. Even basics like around multi-factor authentication, it is one of those basic security principles that you have to have enabled. I can't emphasize multi-factor authentication enough. There's a concept of, of zero trust. And I want to break down zero trust for, for a second. It is not a product or a tool. It's a way of thinking. Zero trust is, is essentially, you know, minimizing your attack surface as much as possible and only giving users in your environment access to what they need. And that goes for servers too. So for example, instead of using full VPNs into your network that now have access to your entire infrastructure, why not just provide them a web portal that they can do all of their their services on that they need for their specific job role or functionality. So compartmentalizing data, compartmentalizing how information is accessed um, and, and the roles and responsibilities for users, and that's really gonna make the big difference in these types of attacks. One breach of, of an individual user should not lead to the entire compromise of an entire organization. And these are all things that we can build uh, very specifically to make things a lot better. This entire investigation happened because a security guy at FireEye noticed that there was a sign-in event for a user using a different registered device. And they called that user and said, did you register a different device? And he said, no. Somebody had the intuition that something looked weird. Something looked a little bit off. In the early days, we didn't know exactly who they were or how advanced they were, but as we continued to dig into it and continue to learn new things that the attacker was doing, I mean, it became very clear to us that we were dealing with a um, highly capable, highly clandestine and advanced adversary. My name is Charles Carmichael, and I'm a Senior Vice President and CTO at FireEye Mediant. Yeah, so I lead a team of incident responders and security consultants that both help organizations respond to breaches, as well as help them become more resilient to attacks. We decided to get in touch with Microsoft because we knew that we needed some additional expertise um, to help us with this. We, we didn't want to do it alone because we knew that we'd be able to gain more speed by pulling in an organization that is highly capable, has smart people, has really strong intelligence, and um, could help us investigate it. And so I, I called the, uh, the leader of the Microsoft uh, detection and response team. It was roughly nine o'clock at night. Um, I told uh, Dan Taylor that uh, we had a security incident at FireEye. He initially thought I was joking, told him I was serious. And I said, uh, Dan, we really appreciate your help. It was late November and I got a text from my boss. I was out walking my dog, right? And um, you know, get this message, it's from Dan, I better answer it. And he's like, well, one of our partners is asking us a question about this weird error code and maybe you've seen it before. And so I said, well, what is it? And so he brings me into the conversation with, you know, with this third party IR company that, that we work with. And it actually wasn't an error code. And I was like, well, I think I might've uttered something that is not suitable for the workplace at that time. Cause I had seen that before during a nation state related investigation for another customer about a year earlier. Early on in November, we started working with FireEye and jointly collaborating with them to get initial insight into this new stealthy actor. And then 
from information we learned in collaborating with them, we have Microsoft's ability of visibility into threat actors around the world. And we took those leads and we started turning those over in our data sets. And we understood the scope started to grow very quickly from that. Hi, I'm John Lambert. I run the Microsoft Threat Intelligence Center. The Microsoft Threat Intelligence Center has a mission to defend Microsoft and its customers against adversary-based threats. And so it's very important that defenders in multiple organizations and in across industry lines of competition collaborate to see the threat as best we can. When you defend so many customers around the globe and you have that responsibility, the, the parts of Microsoft know how to come together in a response and bring what they have to bear on the problem. And the first thing that we needed to do was understand what was the scope and scale of what was going on in this attack. So there was basically a huge collaboration from everyone. Everybody really wanted to do the right thing and, you know, helping helping Microsoft and the customers. Every meeting, you know, you end up having, now, oh, here are now 50, 50 new people. We have now 10 new reverse engineers, or like we have 10 new analysts coming in. And uh, I would say like, really, we are, you know, if we are, if we are not 1,000 people, we're really close to that number because uh, uh, you really need to try to tackle uh, in, uh, in in two months an attacker that's been working for over a year. In November last year, I had decided to travel back to the UK from where I'm based in Seattle. Um, and primarily that was to go see my fiance at the time, um, because we hadn't seen each other for 10 months, obviously due to the pandemic. So I was actually doing my two week required quarantine on arrival in the UK when my, uh, my colleague Christopher sent me, a, sent me a message saying, hey, we, we've got this interesting activity that we've been made aware of. Saturday morning, I was getting ready to go out for a hike, had all my stuff on. I was literally getting ready to go out the door and I got a text message, just texting to my boss. And I start reading it and he sent it to the whole team. He says, all right, this stuff's blown up. We need everybody, all hands on deck. We immediately started to look deeply at the logs for anything that looked abnormal. And over the course of about three days, we were able to pick out just a, a few markers, very subtle markers, that then we looked across the environment for those, for those markers and saw other instances. You know, they didn't do the same playbook at every company. And this was, you know, one of the biggest uh, challenges I've certainly ever had to investigate. Let's just take like, a, if you knew the uh, Nobelium was using a particular IP address at victim A, you couldn't look for that same IP address and go look at victim B, right? They, would, they wouldn't even reuse simple things like that. Um, if they were harvesting mail from, um, let's say 20, 20 users, they would leverage 20 different IP addresses to harvest mail for different users. Uh, or, or, or access um, their mail or, or login as them. So um, brittle indicators, whether it was hashes or file names or IP addresses uh, were, weren't really useful. And then we worked with various teams to help them you know, understand the tradecraft. And then they would then try and emulate or look for it in different environments and, and access the data that they had access to. As we learned about things, we would share it with Microsoft. As Microsoft learned about new tradecraft from the attackers, they would share it with us. And I think we both recognized that um, you know, collectively we're able to um, see more of the, what the attacker is doing and find ways to, to disrupt them by, you know, by, by sharing um, knowledge of what the attackers are doing.
So there were a lot of theories about what was going on here. Theory number one was, well, this actor, this threat actor was able to go steal credentials from lots of places and in particular compromise an on-premise network, move through that network without being detected, and get to an Active Directory Federation server, ADFS server, and steal this secret off of it called the token signing certificate. And we're like, that's really hard to do in one organization. Inspecting the actual token that was presented to Azure Active Directory and looking for any anomalies with it. The thing we noted about those adversary tokens was that more than one of them had a very specific time to live, which was 40 hours. And that became a marker for us. And it was through that that we identified then follow-on customers, um, which we were able to notify, but also with each additional organization that we recognized was compromised, we saw other markers of the adversary. We knew to go look at those particular servers, right? Those Active Directory Federation servers to go look for suspicious activity. And as we started pulling that thread of did anything interesting happen on those, that's where it started pointing back to, yeah, something happened on premise. There was some very stealthy malware there. There were weird activities that we couldn't explain. And eventually it led us to their SolarWinds servers. As we started really digging into the SolarWinds system, there was one thing that we noticed that a specific DLL had spawned a interesting and um, you know, suspect process. So we started to dig into that specific DLL file and we had folks from our malware reverse engineering team um, take a look at it. So they, they decompiled what amounted to about 50,000 plus lines of code. So we quickly worked with reverse engineers here at Microsoft uh, and over our FireEye to break out uh, and share the differences. Some of the things that we saw um, with the malware uh, was uh, the way that um, they had done their homework when it comes to malware development. Uh, and uh, they had made sure uh, that they wrapped the malware uh, in additional layers of code uh, that would uh, basically hide it uh, from antivirus um, products and security solutions out there. Um, so that way they can operate without getting detected by some of these security solutions. Uh, so um, it took us some time to basically remove uh, some, of these, uh, some of these layers to, the, to get to the actual malicious code. We work jointly with FireEye. They make the crucial breakthrough that the SolarWinds software they were running had a supply chain vector. Once we understood a supply chain attack against SolarWinds and how critical that device was used in very privileged parts of customer networks. You got a sense that this attacker could start in hundreds of customer networks, very deep into them, skip many phases of the kill chain in where they would start already with elevated rights. And so at that point, uh, when you realize how many enterprise customers, government departments use this, you knew that this attacker had achieved um, a place to really have major impact across the globe. When we found that scope, it was a combination of exciting and scary. So uh, 
back when the, the intrusion started, it was one being the actor versus many being the victims. But when the incident was discovered, it turned into the sort of many versus one collective effort uh, to investigate and mitigate, uh, mitigate the attack. In this case, many different partners from across the industry came together with a common goal. So in terms of guidance for, for customers going forward, I think one of the big things is making sure you're collecting data ahead of time. Uh, this incident showed that attackers will leverage very different parts of an environment, both in the cloud and on-prem, to, to achieve what they want. One thing is if you RDP into a box, remote desktop protocol into a box, don't leave the session open when you leave, close the session, because then they can't just grab your session and start using your login if they do get into that system. Using, for, for your secure systems, you want to use a secure networking device. You don't want to use your everyday workstation or everyday desktop to do administrative tasks on sensitive systems. Given some of our findings and some of our, um, some of our takeaways from, from this attack, investing in penetration testing, uh, investing in putting together TI teams and TI practices and uh, building relationships uh, and partnerships with other companies, other partners. Uh, everybody has uh, their own unique visibility. Uh, so at the end of the day, it comes down to joining forces uh, to be able to go against a sophisticated actor like this. As soon as something like this happens, we need to put a number of trains in motion in parallel. Like one train obviously is understanding, just like gathering as much data as we possibly can about what's going on. The second is about notifying people. <laughs> and that's, that's a deep and difficult set of conversations. Uh, the third one, and this is where a lot of the folks on my side of the world get deeply involved, is about what are we going to do immediately for impacted customers? I spent 19 years in the United States military, three combat deployments, aviation, logistics, supply, and combat engineering. All of the teams came together in a way that very much reminded me of the way that my Marine Corps came together. And so the way that we respond is like very much like first responders. We pride ourselves on being able to come together regardless of what our areas of specialty are and our areas of expertise and fill in the gaps between each other very quickly on a team that can actually get a mission completed. Just selflessness and the sense of like, if we weren't defending, then who else was going to? We ended up doing like, you know, try to really reach out to the customer. We were very fast to try to notify them and really help them with recovery. That actually enabled us to really limit the possibility of the attacker to become more dangerous. They had to fight a little bit more. And usually when they end up facing unplanned actions, that's where the adversary may commit mistakes, right? And mistakes help us to detect. So it's kind of a cycle. So we end up eventually 
you know, uh, finding little mistakes or actually gathering more evidence that allow us to detect more, right? We had one customer that refused to believe that we were Microsoft and in fact hung up on our colleague that was making the actual phone call, just wouldn't, wouldn't even pick up the phone. One of the challenges, of course, when you call a customer to tell them that there's been a problem is that they've been conditioned for years to believe Microsoft's never going to call you. You really have to meet the customer where they are because the attack is so significant that they're all going to need help in, in different sorts of ways. And so that's the cool thing about the, the size and scope and breadth of Microsoft response is that we can pivot and we have the skills that help us meet the customer and the needs that they have. To see the looks on people's faces as, they, as the gravity of that settled in was certainly sobering for, for me and my team, but also it was a tremendous incentive for us to keep going until we could get to the, the very bottom of it. As a product team, we were really invested in helping our customers in hunting for and investigating, looking for indicators of the Nobelium attack within their own environments. And so while we weren't front lines at defending Microsoft, we were there to provide the support and the tooling that they needed to do that very hard job. Threat hunters analyze telemetry to identify indicators, including tactics, techniques, and procedures, or TTPs the markers of Nobelium activity. So our researchers look at identity, they look at email and, and collaboration, they look at endpoint, they even look at cloud activity and cloud application security. And by taking a holistic view, we're able to track the attackers who move from domain to domain. And that's usually where they get lost in the noise, in the transitions. And we had identified over 70 TTPs that we thought these these are the body of techniques that you need to understand in order to see this this attacker and we worked to go publish those on our blogs and embody them in the products to speed detection there. These TTPs are then used to build automated detections for security products to rapidly find and respond to threats. I pivoted towards taking what we are finding and turning it into these customer facing detections so that more people can be protected from them. Um, and really, the key aspect of that is taking the patterns of activity we find, determining how generic they are, as in are they specific to a particular customer, or are they a attribute of this threat actor generally, or could it be more, more broad, broadly scoped than that? And then developing that into logic that fits into our tools. We were continuously collecting uh, more and more information about how this attack uh, evolves, what are the different pieces, what's new and unique about it, and then working with um, uh, the different teams of in our products to create new detections and capabilities. After release into products, these detections help customers automatically find and respond to new threats across their environments. So what are researchers and we are trying to do with our product is lay it out for our customers so they can see and understand what it was that the attacker did and also help them remediate and re to return their, their network and their assets to a healthy state. We've had incidents before where we've needed to rapidly release uh, detection activity or detection material, but never on the scale that we did with Nobelium. Uh, I mean, we were 
we were releasing multiple detections a day um, into the product. And that continued for the best part of three weeks. It wasn't just, um, you know, one detection, like, oh, if we just could find this one thing that would solve all of our problems. The, the reality is that, you know, there are a collection of activities that a threat actor takes as they execute against the kill chain. And it is that sort of collection of detections at those various stages using those different tactics and techniques that were um, linked to Nobelium. I think that really helped organizations to get that end-to-end -end view of, of the attack and the scope and the impacted resources so they could respond. But, you know, it seconds count when responding to an attack like this. And so we were able to kind of put things into high gear and expedite that process of getting this content out. And our Microsoft Threat Intelligence team um, published um, workbooks and um, Azure Sentinel notebooks to help our customers to do the same work themselves. So security analysts were able to use Azure Sentinel to hunt for um, specific TTPs across a broad set of data. Because the, the threat actor had compromised several customers' on-premise ADFS servers and stolen key material, um, people were very keen to protect that. And we got a lot of feedback saying, this is how do we detect this aspect of it? All traffic, all work across an enterprise is really based upon our identities and what access those identities have. And so trying to pick out which signal or which behavior is malicious from something that is benign is really difficult in order to create a detection of the attack. We leverage signal from our endpoint sensor on the ADFS server itself with signal from identity token traffic to and from the ADFS server. If we take a signal of an activity that happens on an endpoint that by itself might even be benign some of the time, we detect an identity, which in its own might also be benign, but we know that those two, when they occur together, are a clear indication of malicious activity. By correlating signal from different sources, we're able to increase the confidence of our detection and actually create an incident in Microsoft 365 Defender that describes the entire attack, kill chain stage by kill stage, from the ADFS server to the cloud, step by step. So once we managed to create that and publish it, I think that was one that was kind of very impactful for customers, but also quite kind of personally rewarding. Another thing that they did was they would turn off logging and or antivirus on the systems. And of course that essentially they attempted to blind the security people so that what they did wouldn't even show up in our logs. But in larger organizations, people often have reasons for turning off logging, whether they're good or bad reasons. The Microsoft Defender for Endpoint team did actually come up with a bunch of new ways and techniques of making sure that their Defender tool doesn't get turned off. Or if it does, it does throw an alert that's noticed somewhere. So they were able to grow their tool based off of the lessons we learned from this. We're helping customers on their worst days. So really respecting the fact that our customers are having a hard time, they're overwhelmed, they are tired, right? They don't know what to do. Having empathy for that, I think is really important. Turning on multi-factor authentication, 
making sure patches are installed. Those are the basics. They're the diet and exercise of the information technology sector. And we really owe it to ourselves and to our customers to bring that back into the conversation, to make it uh, cool again, to talk about hygiene, cyber hygiene and the basics, because it's too often that nation states don't need advanced sophisticated tactics like we saw. Identity is the number one entry and access point for the majority of all of these attacks. And if you can get a handle on identity first, then your journey towards being secure is going to be immensely faster and more efficient. You have to think about a modern distributed estate. You have to think about how you're going to deploy zero trust. And so what you saw is the attacker traversing a lot of different parts of the estate and bypassing the firewalls altogether. So if you want to protect against that, you actually need a monitoring system that's highly distributed. Then you have to have tools that really give you advanced behavioral modeling to help your defenders have more insight. And then the third thing is you have to practice. You have to exercise the whole system, including the humans, including the security teams, including the end users. You know, when we do our job right, we get to feed information to the customer. We get to feed information back into our products. Our products get to take advantage of that. And then the next time our products do a little bit better, we do a little bit better. We find a new attack, we rinse and repeat. And this is a cycle that, that continually goes on every single day. In the first two, three weeks of the incident, the focus had to be on helping the customer see where the incident was and understand its scope inside their environment. And so, uh, you know, later on, we started to learn differences about how the attack groups behaved and, and how they leveraged different environments and products or tools that were in it. They didn't need to exploit a vulnerability. They abused the rules of the product. Nobelium is a well-resourced, state-sponsored actor with an extensive arsenal of tactics and techniques used to conduct cyber attacks. Perhaps best known for the widespread SolarWind supply chain breach, publicly disclosed in late 2020, it was actually part of an even larger and more sophisticated campaign that had been quietly underway for over a year. Now. Let's review the key findings from the Microsoft Threat Intelligence Center's investigation of the Nobelium attack. Hi, I'm John Lambert. I run the Microsoft Threat Intelligence Center. The Microsoft Threat Intelligence Center has a mission to defend Microsoft and its customers against adversary-based threats. Nobelium had a rich set of techniques that they used across the kill chain. If you start, um, you could start with um, how they achieve penetration into their victim environments. They, while a lot of discussion on this incident really focused on solar winds as a method of penetration, they would do password spraying. They would use vulnerabilities against um, edge devices that were just unpatched against those vulnerabilities. So they had a number of different techniques for uh, getting inside uh, an internal environment, um, or they would get access to 
an organization use their credentials and their credentials already had access to several uh, say subtenants of that organization, their customers and so on. And so they had multiple ways to, to get into an environment. Once they're in, um, they would take a, a typical uh, pattern of doing internal reconnaissance, find out the elevated accounts, find out machines that were there, um, take that data out so that they could you know, understand the map of what they were uh, looking for, and then uh, expand to gain additional elevated rights in an environment and expand their persistence. As they uh, worked within an environment, they took a lot of effort to really silo that. And as they moved laterally within a network from machine to machine, they took great pains to clean up after each step. And so uh, they try to preserve their stealth as they entered a victim. And then armed with that information, they ultimately would then go do whatever they were interested in in a network. And some of our customer was gaining access to their production secrets uh, or their systems, exfiltrating source code. And then we saw a different set of TTPs, but for the same goals against uh, some of our customers from uh, our cloud services. And so once they again had achieved um, elevated rights with inside of a cloud tenant, they would use those rights to uh, start to access email within those tenants or otherwise gain persistence. Attackers' operational security was better than we've ever seen in any other campaign. And so they would uh, be very discreet in how they used uh, th that authentication and then they would just do it once from a specific piece of actor infrastructure and then move on to different infrastructure and different techniques after that. So they would get their foot in the door, but then not continue pushing on that door. They would do things like disable EDR solutions from being um, launched upon system startup. So they would wait a month for patch Tuesday to come around, for the computers to get rebooted. And then when the computer got rebooted, the configuration was changed or the registry key was changed on a Windows system such that the EDR solution wouldn't start up. And so if an EDR solution didn't start up, the attackers more or less had free reign on the machine. They were so deliberate and, and careful about what they did. It wasn't like a smash and grab where they came in and just vacuumed up everything noisily, ran mini cats to grab everybody's passwords and, and fled. It wasn't a situation sometimes where you see um, like the NotPetya in Ukraine a number of years back. They were very sneaky. They planned on staying. They had every intention of coming back. They just didn't know when because they had lots of stuff on their plate. Most threat actors don't have the patience to wait a month to do something, uh, but some will. And uh, and I think you know when, when threat actors adopt that tradecraft, it'll become harder and harder to find them. This was a very sophisticated, persistent, and stealthy threat actor. But the fact that once we picked up on the patterns of activity, that we could go and look across every kind of customer within the Azure cloud to pick out where that threat actor had been was really powerful. And if we had been operating 10, 15 years ago where everything was on-prem, it would have taken us years to even 
get a vague idea of the scope of this incident and we will probably never have a, a full picture of it. But the fact that we have this uh, power and data scale in the cloud means that we can much more effectively kind of identify where the threat actors have been and what, what the scope of their operations are. And that's only going to increase over time as more people move to cloud services. And then as the, that grows, we can start to leverage more advanced machine learning models to, to make this detection of this sort of activity in the future. And again, that's only going to improve and increase as we go forward. In order to respond to an attack no like Nobelium with its scope and breadth and sophistication, you really need to have a visibility into various entities um, across your entire digital estate. So you need to have visibility into security data and events relating to users and endpoints and infrastructure on-prem and in the cloud. And so that breadth of, of security data uh, and the ability to quickly analyze and search that data um, is just very, very clear um, with Nobelium. The attacks of the future, you know, a lot of them are going to be identity-based. Once I can authenticate into your environment, I don't need malware anymore. So that means that monitoring behaviors, building a profile for when Roberto is using his machine, he accesses these 25 resources and he does these kinds of things from, you know, and he's never been in these four countries. And if I ever see something that doesn't fit that pattern, I need to alert on it. One of the things when I think about what does this incident mean going forward, again, certainly reinforces the need of the world to work together on these threats. No one company sees it all, and it is very important, especially with uh, sophisticated threats, to be able to work very quickly um, with lines of trust established. This is not just about companies working together, it's also about individuals trusting each other with inside uh, impacted companies, fellow security industry companies, government institutions. Early parts of this can be chaotic, but the sooner you can come to a crystal clear picture about what actions people can take to respond, you're gonna be able to focus and mobilize organizations around the world to deal with this more effectively. While there are of course are things that we do from a technology perspective, from a product and service perspective, to go improve that and make things simpler and, and uh, make getting insight clearer and easier, uh, working together as from Microsoft with all of our customers and partner organizations and um, industry across industry and government is just super important for threats of this caliber. I think some things that customers can focus on right away in dealing with this that will help them against many different threats that they face are um, along the lines of zero trust, managing supply chain security concerns that they have, and also being resilient in response. Zero trust principles around identity are really about ensuring you have strong identity so you know who is accessing something from what device or endpoint, and that is strongly authenticated against what service and where you have areas of risk because you're not able to get the strength of the identity or authentication as you want, you limit or have conditional access to what they're doing so you can manage your risk proportional to the situation. Supply chain threats really reinforce how important it is to know what's in your environment and be able to manage it. And then critically have a backup plan. It's that it's not a matter of if, it's when, and you wanna have responders that are well-practiced at these incidents 
uh, and able to respond. Um, some things that help them in response um, are, are one, multiple points of perspective on your environment so that you're not overly dependent on one sensor because you can only respond to what you know about. Um, and so it's important to have multiple points of perspective across identity, endpoint, network. You have to realize at the same time, defenders, defender fatigue is a real thing. And so you have to be able to invest in those defenders so that they can surge when they need to. And, uh, and security, like other professions, it's not just a job, it's also a calling in their way and people, security gets in people's blood and they wanna do it. But it also leads to fatigue and exhaustion if the incident drumbeat is, is too strong. So you have to have reserves and plan for that so that you can support your defenders and rest them in between incidents. We can't get our headspace into a world where we think the machines are going to fix this problem. Technology is force amplifiers for the insight from our researchers who are watching the landscape across Mystic and Defender Research and DSRE. And it is connected directly into the people that we are trying to help and turn into heroes, which are the defenders in the companies and partners that we work with. And so we really have to keep that front and center rather than look how shiny our technology is. Well, we had a great time unlocking insights into security from research to artificial intelligence. Keep an eye out for our next episode. And don't forget to tweet us at MSFT Security or email us at securityunlocked at microsoft.com with topics you'd like to hear on a future episode. Until then, stay safe. Stay secure. This week on the Microsoft Threat Intelligence Podcast, join us as we dig deep into the XZ backdoor with its finder, Andreas Freund, and senior security researcher, Thomas Rochia. Be sure to listen in and follow us at msthreatintelpodcast.com or wherever you get your favorite podcasts.